of these things. And so I have entitled the sermon this morning, The Rare Jewel of Biblical Marriage. The Rare Jewel of Biblical Marriage. And I said that way because that phrase, the rare jewel, is a phrase that you often hear when you read the Puritans as they describe what life is like in Christianity. They recognize that true biblical Christianity is indeed a rare jewel. And as you look around today in the church, you discover that biblical marriage is a rare jewel. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing uh, some, we spent some time looking at some other aspects of pre-fall goodness of God. The first one is the Sabbath. That before he even instituted labor, he set up the Sabbath and did so prior to the fall. That he wanted to spend time with us and he wanted to be aware, wanted us to be aware of the need for rest and of fellowship and of spending time with him. The second one is labor. The first one is the Sabbath. The second one is labor. God created man to labor and to do and to work. And we discovered that, in fact, the curse in regard to labor isn't labor. The curse in regard to labor is excessive labor for fruit produced. Excessive labor for fruit produced. But labor itself is a joy and a delight and a privilege as God has designed it for us as we reflect the very image of God as we create things by our labor. And the third one is marriage. God himself being Trinitarian and perfectly united to himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and delighting in himself created man and created marriage. Now, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you before we even turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, as I look around today in the church, not outside the church, what hope would you find? What hope would you have to look in the world that doesn't know the God of the universe? What hope would you have there to see joyful marriage, delightful marriage? The answer is you'd have no hope there. But in the church, one would hope to see the blessedness and the joy of marriage. But what do I find and what do most of you find? As you look around, what do you find? And the reality is this, in Christian marriages, what it's mostly like is Siamese twins joined at the hip and they don't really like each other. But they're Siamese twins and they can't get away. They know the Bible doesn't allow it. And so they just sort of put up with each other and they've learned to live with each other. Siamese twins. What a dreadful image. I've never actually met Siamese twins, but can you imagine being Siamese twins and not liking the other person? Biblical marriage is nothing like Siamese twins. It's joy and delight. It is indeed a purpose defined by God with great mystery and ministry and opportunity and pleasure everywhere you turn. But there's much ignorance in the church regarding marriage. There's much chaos in the church regarding marriage. And sadly, listen, there's much lack of desire in marriages today. And so as we look at back to the idea before the fall, what would marriage have been like when God created it? And therefore, what is marriage like when Christ himself redeems it? What is marriage to look like? Now let me say this. If we start this subject, this is one of those subjects, and I've mentioned this before, but this is truly one of them. Listen, this is one of those subjects, oh, he's going to talk about marriage. Now, we actually have a couple of couples here that might be interested in that. Chris and Haley have just gotten married. They're just a couple of months into it. And uh, Clay and, and Laura over here are, are just announced their engagement. They're, so like, oh, I might have their attention. But the rest of you are like, oh, marriage, I've been, you know, been there, done that. Got the T-shirt. But the reality is, you may be the very people I'm talking about when I say Siamese twins. 
So may it be so that we would have a teachable spirit, that we would perk up, and perhaps, not necessarily, but perhaps God may do a miracle in your marriage. Will you stand to honor the Word of God? In Genesis chapter 2, we're seeing again this beauty of God's creation. And as He's creating, we're seeing His goodness and we're seeing His wisdom. Verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden, which means pleasure, to cultivate it and to keep it, or to cultivate it and to guard it, we have learned. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned it into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Will you pray with me, please? Our good God, We desire to receive your goodness in creation, in Sabbath, in labor, and in marriage. And we plead with you to grant us a teachable spirit in this hour that you might be glorified and we would walk in your blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you come to the Word of God, I hope that when you come to any subject in the Word of God, when you come to the Bible, that you know that what you're going to find in the Bible are four things. There are four things from Genesis to maps that you're going to find over and over again in the Bible. And they are the worth of God, the works of God, the will of God, and the ways of God. The worth, the works, the will, and the ways of God. And we find, under the works and the will of God, marriage. We see here that God has created marriage in such a way that really is almost mind-numbing in this sense. Why is it mind-numbing? Here it is. The divorce rate is something about 50%. But if you've followed any of the statistics recently, George Barna says that the divorce rate in the church is higher than the divorce rate outside the church. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. What organization would tolerate a 50% failure rate of what they do? They make widgets and 50% of their widgets fail. What organization or corporation would do that? What sports team would tolerate year after year after year just 50% of the games won? That's good enough. It's a stunning statistic. 
But here's what's really stunning about it, is that marriage isn't created to be tolerable. It isn't created, brothers and sisters, for duty and for positive service. It's created for pleasure, for joy, for delight. And yet, we have failed to grasp that. And we've failed to grasp it, brothers and sisters, because we've failed to learn of God what marriage is. We've failed to learn from God and from God's Word what marriage is. But we need to reflect on that this morning as we look at the Word of God. There are marriage seminars that abound today. and you can, uh, There's no shortage of them. Um, marriage seminars are okay. They're, they're worthwhile to go and, and be encouraged. I find that the marriage seminars I read about and the marriage books I read are not all that helpful uh, when I see the Bible. And here's why. Ari Kiev put it this way a Jewish psychologist in the 50s. R.A.K.F. said, the best relationships are developed in the pursuit of a common goal and not in pursuit of the relationship. The best relationships are developed in pursuit of a common goal and not in pursuit of the relationship. And marriage seminar after marriage seminar after marriage seminar really tries to emphasize the, the marriage itself. Well, I'm preaching on marriage this morning. So that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? No. Because the biblical marriage is a very different perspective than just simply two people getting along. The biblical perspective of marriage is filled and marked with joy and pleasure, but it isn't in and of themselves. It's as the husband turns and looks to the God who created him and pursues that mission and purpose that God created him for, and the wife beautifully wraps herself around him and is there as the helpmate as God has created him to be. How radically different. Listen, brothers and sisters, in most places, if you said that today, including churches, you'd get a lot of glares when you say something like that. Because what I just said wasn't, it's for a man and woman to stand shoulder to shoulder and look to God and say, what do you have for us? That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that the men who are created by God stand before God in their prayer closets, in their assemblies, in their church, day after day, week after week, pleading with God and His Word, what is it you would have us to do? What is it you've created me to do? How may I bring glory to you today, Heavenly Father? And the wife then waiting to hear, what's it going to be? What are we doing today? What are we doing this week? What are we doing this month? That's the biblical perspective. It's radically different from the world's perspective. And why is it radically different? Three areas. Brothers and sisters, every aspect of the fall comes in three areas. The fall comes and tries to rob us of the joy and the delights of marriage. And there are many joys and delights in marriage. But the fall comes and seeks to rob us of that. It robs us in three ways. And it robs us in this way. The gospel. Because the gospel has three aspects to it. Jesus Christ is prophet. He tells the truth. Jesus Christ is priest. He appeals to the heart. And Jesus Christ is king. He expects obedience. He's prophet, he's priest, and he's king. And in regard to marriage, where there should be truth, we have ignorance. Where there should be heart, we have indifference. And where there should be obedience, we have chaos. But the Bible gives us a very beautiful picture of what God has created it to be. What a remarkable thing that here as we come this morning, we can look at the Word of God and seek to have our minds not slightly adjusted, but radically realigned as God has created them to be. 
Radically, why do I say radically realigned? Because before you came in here this morning, your mind was already pretty severely messed up, okay? And when you get out of here today, what's gonna, first thing that's gonna happen? First thing that's gonna happen? What's the first thing that happens after a sermon? Do you know? It's the evil one comes and he robs you of the seed. He comes and he robs you of the seed. And even if you say, well that was a good sermon, what's for lunch? And here, this most central issue of life itself, marriage. Brothers and sisters, we have to pay attention. We have to be pleading with God over here that we might learn of His ways in regard to the Gospel. Brothers and sisters, in Genesis 2, verse 20. Look at it with me. Genesis 2, verse 20. If you don't get anything else, get this and then go to sleep. But listen to this. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he creates woman. That's what happens. Listen to this. It means this. It means the God of the universe searched the globe and he was looking for that just right assistant. Not partner. Just right assistant. Helpmate for man. He didn't find it. So what does he do? He uses his eternal, unfathomable wisdom and power and goodness and he crafts woman and he gives her to Adam. And now you know that marriage is good because God himself not only created marriage, he created the woman to perfectly bring about what he wants in cooperation with the husband. What does that mean? It means this. When I was a young man, my dad... My dad was, a, was one of those people who built and did and repaired. and I mean, he could build the Taj Mahal. He could just do anything. He, but he had tools. You know, he understood you've got to have tools. My dad had stock and sears. You know, he owned every tool they had. You've got to have tools. You've got to have the right tool, Bob. What does it mean? It means the God of the universe has designed the right tool for joy. The right tool for happiness and pleasure and satisfaction. Now, what are we doing with those tools? Are we, are, we, are we reading the owner's manual? Are we looking to see what needs to happen? Okay? Are we looking to the owner's manual for proper maintenance and upkeep and how do you use this thing? It's pretty critical. It's critical to tools. It's essential in regard to marriage. The three areas are this. The first one is ignorance. We don't know the ways of God in regard to marriage. We don't understand what it's even designed for. The second area has to do with desire, the heart. It's the very thing that motivates and keeps marriage, the delight, desire. And the third thing, order, obedience, order, headship, followership, order. And we want to see that in the Word of God. If it's not there, then we don't want to, we don't want to uh, maintain it. But we can maintain it because it is so set forth in the Word of God. Ignorance is abounding in the world today regarding marriage. It abounds because of this. The world does not know God. The world doesn't know God, and therefore it doesn't know God's ways. Now, years ago, brothers and sisters, listen to this. Years ago, that wasn't quite so significant. Why? Because the world was dominated by the church. At least the Western world was. Dominated by the church, and so therefore the culture was dominated by that. When I was a child, you would not go out of your house on Sunday morning if you were staying home from church. It's just like, you don't do it. You don't go in public during the 11 o'clock worship hour. You stay inside. 
Okay? It was dominated by a Christian culture. Husbands and wives were dominated by the Christian culture. And they have been from time to time as revivals come in and God brings us back again to the glories and the wonders and the truths of His good and right ways. As we see that, a generation is brought up in that and trained in that. And there was a huge revival in America. Most people aren't aware of it. A huge revival, particularly in the South, following the Civil War. And it had a tremendous impact in America. It produced generations of people who grew and raised family and husbands and wives were trained by their parents as children. And they saw it in their parents. But we've had a tremendous lack of that. And we live today in a culture in which the church is really quite the minority. So everywhere you go, we're actually, we're actually drinking in ignorance everywhere we turn, unless we turn specifically to the Word of God. And we want to be aware of that because knowledge, we saw this morning in Second Peter chapter 1, as Bob read that, we saw that knowledge is a key aspect of walking with God, that God would have us to walk in the knowledge of His ways. But the second aspect in regard to the uh, gospel in marriage is the idea of uh, delight. For most people, it's not a delight, it's endurance. That's the idea of Siamese twins. It's endurance. It is not difficult to discern when someone or two someones are not having a good time. You see this, brothers and sisters. You've seen it yourself. Some of you have experienced it in your marriages. You go and you look around at restaurants and public events and where you see married people and you see most of them barely tolerating each other. They have learned to get along. They have not learned. Listen, they have learned to get along. They have not learned the joy of biblical marriage. And I'm not talking about just people married five years or ten years or fifteen or twenty or twenty-five or thirty. People have been married a long time. They learn. They just they've just learned some boundaries. They know not to cross that boundary. There's there's some bush, there's some buttons they can't push, and they know not to push them. So they don't, generally speaking. And neither of them are delighting in the marriage. They're just Siamese twins joined at the hip. But brothers and sisters, as we look at the gospel, bringing back the idea, Christ does this in the gospel. He brings truth in regard to ignorance, and he brings the heart back as a central focus in regard to marriage. And in regard to marriage, desire and desirability are a central part of the marriage, not just for young, early married. Part of marriage, a central part of marriage, is desire and desirability that we would constantly be desiring our spouse and living in such a way that our spouse desires us. And we see this because the God of the universe reflects that, and we'll see that, and we're going to look at a passage in just a minute about that. But what we see today is endurance. It's really the frog in a boiling pot idea. You've seen that today. You've heard that illustration. Boy, that really describes marriage, doesn't it? Frog in a boiling pot. The water gets hotter and hotter. The frog just doesn't jump out, and finally he dies. Um, That isn't what God designed. Keep in mind, God is good, and everything that comes from God is good, and marriage is designed of God. It means directly that, therefore, marriage is worth finding out what it was supposed to be like. What is marriage supposed to be like? The third area is individuality or versus chaos. The first one is ignorance. The second one is desire or lack of desire. The third area is order or chaos or individuality. And today we see that in phrases like finding fulfillment and finding ourselves. What did Arikiev say? The best relationships are developed in finding yourself? No, the best relationships are developed in pursuit of a common goal and not in pursuit of the relationship. 
And in individuality, we see everywhere, we see men abdicating their responsibility. Men abdicating their responsibility of headship and of leadership in the home and therefore in the marriage itself. But abdication is a shameful word. And we need to bring back an understanding of the shame of abdication and the strength of manhood in regard to leadership. There are areas and concerns that have brought these things today. We live, brothers and sisters, in a culture of feminism. We live in a culture of effeminate men and feminist women. And when I say effeminate men, I don't mean necessarily limp-wristed. Effeminate men and feminist women. Men who have lost the concept of manhood and women who do not know what a treasure it is to be a woman. There was a song back in the 30s called, I Enjoy Being a Girl. Try playing that on the radio today. I enjoy playing a, being a girl. The idea of delighting in femininity and delighting in masculinity and manhood. What a remarkable thing that is. But we live in a world not only of feminism, which is surrounding us, by the way. It hasn't, feminism, brothers and sisters, and effeminate in regard to men, is not an age through which we pass. Because some of us are confused about that. If this is a timeline, we think about the 60s, and then we get to the 70s, oh, feminist age, 70s, you know. But now we're in 2008. We're kind of over that, you know. Some of us don't even understand why Hillary wears pantsuits. We're beyond that now, you know? No, 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 no. Our culture embraced every bit of that. Virtually every bit of that in regard to the culture itself. And again, keep in mind, the culture dominates the world today, not the church. And therefore, the church is tremendously influenced in the year 2008 in regard to these issues. We need to be looking to see what is it God would have us in regard to the uh, aspects of, of marriage The design of marriage we see is good. We see the fall affecting these things, these aspects of marriage. We see chaos instead of order. We see endurance instead of delight. And we see ignorance instead of a knowledge of God's ways. And the Bible says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. But when we think about knowledge, let me just begin with this Dr. Phil phrase, which I rarely use, but once in a while it's very helpful. Dr. Phil says this. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? If people are honest, it ain't working out very good. I look around, my eyes are open, your eyes are open. It's not working out that good. Brothers and sisters, we need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about that. And we need to say to ourselves, why sit we here until we die? Why sit we here until we die? That, of course, is the phrase from the twelve lepers. The lepers who are healed by Christ. Why, why, not not Christ, I'm sorry, it's actually in the Old Testament, the uh, lepers who are not able to eat and they go out into a camp and they risk their lives to go to an enemy camp because they recognize that if they don't go to the enemy camp, they're just going to die in the wilderness. But they go to the enemy camp, they actually end up finding an incredible banquet. Why sit we here until we die? Brothers and sisters, that would be one of the worst things, one of the most unbiblical things you could do would just simply be to white-knuckle it and say, look, I've made it this long. You know, I can just continue with my hobbies and hope for a heart attack and, and make it. Why sit we here until we die? But rather, the other idea is this, that on the other side of a little bit of education, a little bit of re not a little bit, a lot of education, a lot of reorienting ourselves, and the possibility of a garden of delight called marriage. And that's where God would have us to be. And listen to this, brothers and sisters. Even if you're not interested in that, God calls you to that. God calls you to that. 
perhaps like a good father who throws his son in the water and says, swim, God calls you to that. He doesn't just say, well, put your toe in there and see if you like this idea of biblical marriage. He calls you to biblical marriage. And then he does this. He says, when you get it right, when you come closer and closer to the gospel in regard to your marriage, it'll be a beacon of light in the community. It'll be a beacon of light. That was true 100 years ago. It was true 200 years ago. It was true with the Puritans. It's very true in the year 2008 for any couple, anywhere to be demonstrating a biblical marriage. People notice that. They'll sit up. You'll get people's attention when you do that. And the gospel will go forth in that regard. We need to praise God for wake-up calls. Sometimes the mediocrity and difficulty of a marriage can be very painful. And that wake-up call can be a very good thing. It's a good thing if you have pain in your body and you go to the doctor and he says, there's a tumor, let's take it out. He takes it out and you're in better health. So may it be so as we look at this ourselves. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I want to just reiterate to you here that what you see in the New Testament is exactly what we just saw in Genesis 2. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And he says this, verse 3. We just read in chapter 2 that God creates man first for his glory, and then he creates this wonderful, perfectly designed helpmate. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or hair head shaved, let her cover her head. Verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of God. Of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's New Testament, as they say. That's the Holy Spirit. Listen to what that is. It's the Holy Spirit making clear that what he said in Genesis chapter 2 is still true. That's the Holy Spirit graciously making it clear that in the New Testament era, none of that has changed. None of that has changed. Man is still created for the glory of God. Woman is still created for the glory of man. And the difference in their perspectives, in their roles, and how they go about that is rather extraordinary. And the Holy Spirit makes that clear. And that's the first part of the gospel always of coming to Christ as prophet. Coming to Christ as prophet, coming to the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 11, and being persuaded, having our minds changed, having our minds reoriented against from what the world has taught us, from what we've seen, and changing our minds to what the Word of God and the Holy Spirit say to us very clearly. And you'll see many other passages. 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the clearer passages, but there are many others that you can spend some time on and learn the reorienting, the radical reorienting, of our thinking. But what I want you to see is 1 Corinthians 11 and Genesis 2 appear to be written by the same author because they are. The first one is our thinking. Our thinking needs to be aligned with God. And we want to do that. Our thinking needs to be aligned with God. The second area is desire and desirability. 
It's an essential element. It's an essential component that can never be assumed. And it's probably the first to pass. An essential element that can never be assumed and probably the first to pass in the three areas. There's a famous movie uh, years ago, not so famous today, Fiddler on the Roof, very, very famous Broadway musical before it became a movie. In the Broadway musical and in the movie, there's a central song that many people think that it's really sort of, other than If I Were a Rich Man, maybe the very center of the movie, of the Broadway musical. It's a man and a wife, and they represent, in a very real way, Siamese twins. And the husband asked his wife, they're probably in their 50s, maybe late 50s, he asked his wife, do you love me? Because his daughter talks about being in love. And he meets the daughter's boyfriend, and the boyfriend talks about being in love with his daughter. And they have desire for each other. And the husband now, 58, close to 60 years old, goes home and he asks his wife, do you love me? And she begins reciting all the things that she does for him. And he recites all the things she does for him. And at the end of the song, they say, I suppose I do. It completely lacks the concept of desire. It's centered around the fact that I do fix your meals. I do wash your clothes. I put up with you. I laugh at your jokes or whatever it is. It's just duty, duty, duty. And at the end of the song, I suppose I do. But desire is the idea that you, your eyes brighten. That's a common phrase in the Old Testament. Your eyes brighten. When Jonathan tasted honey one day when he was very tired and weary and hungry. He put some honey to his lips and the Bible says his eyes brightened. That's the idea that should be explaining when a husband thinks about his wife, not just the engagement, not just in the marriage or the honeymoon stage, but every day of his life, the husband thinks about his wife and his eyes brighten. A wife sees her husband and her eyes brighten. Look to see what the Word of God has to say on this subject. Turn in your Bibles to Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I love this. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Song of Solomon is after Ecclesiastes, after Proverbs. It's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I love this. In Jewish cultures, they wouldn't let men read this until they were 25 for years and years and years. I just love this. Listen to this. It's in chapter 2. This is the woman speaking. Listen to this. It's not the man. We always think about the man being excited about looking at his lovely bride. This is the woman speaking in chapter 2, verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my hand at head, and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. This is the other one speaking. I'm sorry, verse 7. You have to know the Song of Solomon. It goes back and forth between the bride and the uh, husband. Verse 7 is the husband. But now back to the bride. Verse 8. Listen, my beloved. Behold, he is coming. 
climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind a wall, for he is looking through the window. He is peering through the lattice. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines and blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Not Siamese twins. Not Siamese twins. Brothers and sisters, listen to this carefully. One of the greatest lies of the devil, and he's the father of lies. He's not only a liar, he's the father of lies. One of the greatest lies of the devil is that desire is just for the young. That desire is just for the very young. It isn't so. It isn't so. Desire is for every husband as long as he's a husband and for every wife as long as she's a wife. Desire and desirability. I'm going to write a book someday, Sense and Sensibility. I'm going to write Desire and Desirability. It needs to be out there. The church needs to hear about that. They need to be reminded that it's the very flame, it's the very coal, it's the very engine that runs a marriage. Desire and desirability. You don't need to go to a marriage seminar per se. Spend some time reading the Word of God and delighting in the goodness of God and pleading with Him in your prayer closet that you would be desiring to your wife and that you would find her desirable and vice versa. We need to have a sense of this and the Bible... Listen to the wisdom of God. I just love how smart God is. I really do. I just love it. The Bible puts Song of Solomon there. The God of the universe puts it there. If you're reading the Bible on a regular basis, you're going to see that. I'm kind of mystified by people who read through the Bible all the time and that never kind of jumps out at them. Unless they just, you know, bat it away by saying, well, that was for the young. That was for the first six weeks of marriage. But it isn't so, brothers and sisters. The God of the universe created us and He wants us to have that sense of joy and that sense of delight, that sense of our eyes brightening when we see our spouse. Can desire be a burden? Think about that. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Picture Adam and Eve. Picture the garden. Can desire be a burden? Apparently it can. Look around. Apparently it can. But what an irony that the God of the universe who creates desire, that, that gives you a demonstration. Listen, it gives you a demonstration of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That desire will become a burden. The exceeding sinfulness of sin, and therefore the great necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would plead with God that He might restore us to biblical view of marriage. It requires work, brothers and sisters, and I'm not confused about that. Requires work, and God is willing to supply the power for that by the work of His Holy Spirit and by the teaching of His Word. The last area is order. The first one was knowledge, understanding the truth as God has created man and woman. The second area, desire and desirability. The third area is order, and God would have us to have a clear understanding of order. Uh, Turning your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. 
Now, I want to tell you something about Ephesians 5, and as we turn there, we're going to start at uh, verse 22. Ephesians 5, verse 22. As we do, keep in mind we just talked about knowledge and desire. Because I'm now going to talk about order and the idea of our working at this. But it comes after knowledge and after desire, as God has revealed it to us. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, if you can feel the weight of that, feel the power of that, feel the blanket of that, feel the release of that. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What's he doing? Christ is cultivating, we learned this last week, he's cultivating and guarding the garden the way Adam didn't. And a husband is to cultivate and to guard his wife. Verse 28, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Brothers and sisters, you could spend some time, and I certainly encourage you to do so, spend some time with that over the next little bit. Spend some time reading and rethinking marriage. If you go out of here and just simply continue with exactly what you've been doing, what a failure, what a tremendous opportunity, a missed opportunity rather, to delight in biblical marriage. But it will require some study, some reorienting of our thinking, truth, some changing some things, actually putting your minds to it and changing some things about, wow, this idea of desire and desirability. And the last area, the idea of order as opposed to chaos, the idea of the headship of the husband and the cooperation and submission of the wife. These are things that require a good bit of study and prayer. And they are things that we cannot cover in this time this morning, but that we should commit ourselves to praying for ourselves, praying for one another. Marriage, brothers and sisters, is really a test. It's one of many that God gives us in regard to salvation. Listen to that. Marriage is a test, like a litmus test, in regard to salvation. Are you willing to have your heart and mind and hands changed by the Word of God? Or do you find yourself pursuing marriage in the same way that the world does? It's like a movie theater. When you go into a movie theater and you see the movie up there and you see this projector, you see the image up there, that's what you're seeing. But there's actually something back here called the projector. And the projector is whether or not the Holy Spirit is in your heart. Whether or not the Holy Spirit is in you beating out that rhythm in agreement with the Word of God and unsatisfied until it's in rhythm with the Word of God. And if you recognize that your heart is not in rhythm with the Word of God, a believer says, well, let's find the rhythm. Let's learn it. And let's be in rhythm with the Word of God. The non-believer doesn't even hear the rhythm of the Word of God. 
The believer goes and he sees, he can see his life out there on the projector. And when it's not on the screen, when it's not right, he knows to look at his heart and to fix something. All of us have been in the theater where somebody wasn't awake and they let the projector get out of control. It's very frustrating. But God calls us to get up and do something with the projector when it's out of control. And the analogy is this. People can see your marriage, brothers and sisters. They can see your marriage. Your children can see your marriage. Your friends, your parents, your neighbors can see your marriage. And they can tell if this is something that's rare and a jewel. Let me close with the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, The tragedy is that civil authorities, irrespective of which political party is in power, all seem to be governed by modern psychology rather than by the scriptures. They are all convinced that they can deal with unrighteousness directly in and by itself, but that is impossible. Unrighteousness is always the result of ungodliness, and the only hope of getting back any measure of righteousness into life is to have a revival of godliness. And then he says this, listen, I'm almost done. We can be true evangelists, We, the church, husbands and wives, we can be true evangelists by showing this discipline, this law and order, this true relationship between husband and wife, parents and children. We may be the means under God's hand of bringing many to a knowledge of the truth. Let us therefore think of it in that way. We may be the means under God's hand of bringing many to a knowledge of God's truth. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do desire that you would indeed uh, teach us from your word, that you would give us a teachable spirit to know and do that which is pleasing in your sight. Father, I pray that you'd bless each married person here and those that are engaged. I pray that you'd bless us to have a hunger and thirst, Heavenly Father, for biblical marriage, to recognize that you've created woman for the perfect design of marriage to be the right and suitable helpmate to man. Grant each person here, Father, a teachable spirit to have our minds reoriented toward your view and perspective and design for marriage. Instill in our hearts, Father, desire and desirability and perpetuate that more and more and cause us to embrace the beauty and order that you bring to marriage in a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church, cultivating and guarding, and a wife in full submission as the church unto Christ. Father, may it be so that we would see radical changes in the marriages of those who are here this morning and that the world would see that and glorify you in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name.